Section fifteen of the Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Luck of Roaring Camp and Other Sketches by Bret Hart. Chapter twelve. Notes by Flood and Field. Part two. In the Flood. Three months after the survey of the Espiritu Santo Rancho, I was again in the valley of the Sacramento, but a general and terrible visitation had erased the memory of that event as completely as I supposed it had obliterated the boundary monuments I had planted. The great flood of 1861-62 was at its height, when, obeying some indefinite yearning, I took my carpet-bag and embarked for the inundated valley. There was nothing to be seen from the bright cabin windows of the Golden City but night deepening over the water. The only sound was the pattering rain, and that had grown monotonous for the past two weeks, and did not disturb the national gravity of my countrymen as they silently sat around the cabin stove some on errands of relief to friends and relatives wore anxious faces and conversed soberly on the one absorbing topic others like myself attracted by curiosity listened eagerly to newer details but with that human disposition to seize upon any circumstance that might give chance event the exaggerated importance of instinct I was half-conscious of something more than curiosity as an impelling motive. The dripping of rain, the low gurgle of water, and a leaden sky greeted us the next morning as we lay beside the half-submerged levee of Sacramento. Here, however, the novelty of boats to convey us to the hotels was an appeal that was irresistible. I resigned myself to a dripping, rubber-cased mariner called Joe, and wrapping myself in a shining cloak of the like material, about as suggestive of warmth as court-plaster might have been, took my seat in the stern sheets of his boat. It was no slight inward struggle to part from the steamer that to most of the passengers was the only visible connecting link between us and the dry and habitable earth. But we pulled away and entered the city, stemming a rapid current as we shot the levee. We glided up the long level of K Street, once a cheerful, busy thoroughfare, now distressing in its silent desolation. The turbid water which seemed to meet the horizon edge before us flowed at right angles in sluggish rivers through the streets. Nature had revenged herself on the local taste by disarraying the regular rectangles by huddling houses on street corners, where they presented abrupt gables to the current, or by capsizing them in compact ruin. Crafts of all kinds were gliding in and out of low-arched doorways. The water was over the top of the fences surrounding well-kept gardens in the first stories of hotels and private dwellings, trailing its slime on velvet carpets as well as roughly boarded floors. And a silence, quite as suggestive as the visible desolation was in the voiceless streets that no longer echoed to carriage-wheel 
or footfall. The low ripple of water, the occasional splash of oars, or the warning cry of boatmen, were the few signs of life and habitation. With such scenes before my eyes, and such sounds in my ears, as I lie lazily in the boat, is mingled the song of my gondolier, who sings to the music of his oars. It is not quite as romantic as his brother of the Lido might improvise, but my Yankee Giuseppe has the advantage of earnestness and energy, and gives a graphic description of the terrors of the past week, and of noble deeds of self-sacrifice and devotion, occasionally pointing out a balcony from which some California Bianca or Laura had been snatched half-clothed and famished. Giuseppe is otherwise peculiar, and refuses the proffered fare, for am I not a citizen of San Francisco which was first to respond to the suffering cry of Sacramento? And is not he, Giuseppe, a member of the Howard Society? No, Giuseppe is poor, but cannot take my money. Still, if I must spend it, there is the Howard Society, and the women and children without food and clothes at the agricultural hall. I thank the generous gondolier, and we go to the hall, a dismal, bleak place, ghastly with the memories of last year's opulence and plenty, and here Giuseppe's fare is swelled by the stranger's might. But here Giuseppe tells me of the relief boat, which leaves for the flooded district in the interior. And here, profiting by the lesson he has taught me, I make the resolve to turn my curiosity to the account of others, and am accepted of those who go forth to succor and help the afflicted. Giuseppe takes charge of my carpet-bag, and does not part from me until I stand on the slippery deck of Relief Boat Number 3. An hour later I am in the pilot-house, looking down upon what was once the channel of a peaceful river. But its banks are only defined by tossing tufts of willow, washed by the long swell that breaks over a vast inland sea. Stretches of Thule land, fertilized by its once regular channel and dotted by flourishing ranchos, are now cleanly erased. The cultivated profile of the old landscape had faded. Dotted lines in symmetrical perspective mark orchards that are buried and chilled in the turbid flood. The roofs of a few farmhouses are visible, and here and there the smoke curling from chimneys of half-submerged tenements show an undaunted life within. Cattle and sheep are gathered on Indian mounds, waiting the fate of their companions, whose carcasses drift by us, or swing in eddies with the wrecks of barns and outhouses. Wagons are stranded everywhere where the tide could carry them. As I wipe the moistened glass, I see nothing but water, pattering on the deck from the lowering clouds, dashing against the window, dripping from the willows, hissing by the wheels, everywhere washing, coiling, sapping, hurrying in rapids, or swelling at last into deeper and vaster lakes, awful in their suggestive quiet and concealment. As day fades into night, the monotony of this strange prospect grows oppressive. 
I seek the engine-room, and in the company of some of the few half-drowned sufferers we have already picked up from temporary rafts, I forget the general aspect of desolation in their individual misery. Later we meet the San Francisco packet and transfer a number of our passengers. From them we learn how inward-bound vessels report to having struck the well-defined channel of the Sacramento fifty miles beyond the bar. There is a voluntary contribution taken among the generous travelers for the use of our afflicted, and we part company with a hearty Godspeed on either side. But our signal lights are not far distant before a familiar sound comes back to us, an indomitable Yankee cheer, which scatters the gloom. Our course is altered, and we are steaming over the obliterated banks far in the interior. Once or twice black objects loom up near us, the wrecks of houses floating by. There is a slight rift in the sky towards the north, and a few bearing stars to guide us over the waste. As we penetrate into shallower water, it is deemed advisable to divide our party into smaller boats and diverge over the submerged prairie. I borrow a pea-coat of one of the crew, and in that practical disguise am doubtfully permitted to pass into one of the boats. We give way northerly. It is quite dark yet, although the rift of cloud has widened. It must have been about three o'clock, and we were lying upon our oars in an eddy formed by a clump of cottonwood, and the light of the steamer is a solitary bright star in the distance, when the silence is broken by the bow oar. Light ahead! All eyes are turned in that direction. In a few seconds a twinkling light appears, shines steadily, and again disappears as if by the shifting position of some black object apparently drifting close upon us. Stern all, a steamer! Hold hard there, steamer be damned, is the reply of the coxswain. It's a house, and a big one, too. It is a big one, looming in the starlight like a huge fragment of the darkness. The light comes from a single candle, which shines through a window as the great shape swings by. Some recollection is drifting back to me with it, as I listen with beating heart. There's someone in it, by heavens! Give way, boys! Lay her alongside! Handsomely, now! The door's fastened! Try the window! No! Here's another!" In another moment we are trampling in the water, which washes the floor to the depth of several inches. It is a large room, at the further end of which an old man is sitting wrapped in a blanket, holding a candle in one hand, and apparently absorbed in the book he holds with the other. I spring toward him with an exclamation, "'Joseph Tryon!' He does not move. We gather closer to him, and I lay my hand gently on his shoulder and say, "'Look up, old man, look up! Your wife and children, where are they? The boys! George! Are they here? Are they safe?' He raises his head slowly, and turns his eyes to mine, and we involuntarily recoil before his look. It is a calm and quiet glance, free from fear, anger, or pain. 
but it somehow sends the blood curdling through our veins. He bowed his head over his book again, taking no further notice of us. The men look at me compassionately and hold their peace. I make one more effort. Joseph Tryon, don't you know me? The surveyor who surveyed your ranch, the Espiritu Santo. Look up, old man. He shuddered and wrapped himself closer in his blanket. Presently he repeated to himself, the surveyor who surveyed your ranch, Espiritu Santo, over and over again, as though it were a lesson he was trying to fix in his memory. I was turning sadly to the boatman, when he suddenly caught me fearfully by the hand and said, Hush! We were silent. Listen! He puts his arm around my neck and whispers in my ear, I'm a-moving off. Moving off? Hush! Don't speak so loud. Moving off. Ah, what's that? Don't you hear? There, listen. We listen and hear the water gurgle and click beneath the floor. It's them what he sent. Old Altascar sent. They've been here all night. I heard em first in the creek when they came to tell the old man to move farther off. They came nearer and nearer. They whispered under the door, and I saw their eyes on the step, their cruel, hard eyes. Ah, why don't they quit? I tell the men to search the room, and see if they can find any further traces of the family, while Tryon resumes his old attitude. It is so much like the figure I remember on the breezy night that a superstitious feeling is fast overcoming me. When they have returned, I tell them briefly what I know of him, and the old man murmurs again, Why don't they quit, then? They have the stock. All gone, gone, gone for the hides and hoofs. And he groans bitterly. There are other boats below us. The shanty cannot have drifted far, and perhaps the family are safe by this time, says the coxswain hopefully. We lift the old man up, for he is quite helpless, and carry him to the boat. He is still grasping the Bible in his right hand, though its strengthening grace is blank to his vacant eye, and he cowers in the stern as we pull slowly to the steamer, while a pale gleam in the sky shows the coming day. I was weary with excitement, and when we reached the steamer and had seen Joseph Tryon comfortably bestowed, I wrapped myself in a blanket near the boiler and presently fell asleep. But even then the figure of the old man often started before me, and a sense of uneasiness about George made a strong undercurrent to my drifting dreams. I was awakened at about eight o'clock in the morning by the engineer, who told me one of the old man's sons had been picked up and was now on board. Is it George Tryon? I asked quickly. Don't know, but he's a sweet one, whoever he is, adds the engineer, with a smile at some luscious remembrance. You'll find him forward. I hurry to the bow of the boat and find not George, but the irrepressible Wise, sitting on a coil of rope, 
a little dirtier and rather more dilapidated than i can remember having seen him he is examining with apparent admiration some rough dry clothes that have been put out for his disposal i cannot help thinking that circumstances have somewhat exalted his usual cheerfulness he puts me at my ease by at once addressing me these are high old times ain't they i say what do you reckon's become of them thar boundary monuments you stuck ah the pause which succeeds this outburst is the effect of a spasm of admiration at a pair of high boots which by great exertion he has at last pulled on his feet so you've picked up the old man in the shanty clean crazy he must have been soft to have stuck there instead of leaving with the old woman didn't know me from adam took me for george at this affecting instance of paternal forgetfulness wise was evidently divided between amusement and chagrin i took advantage of the contending emotions to ask about george don't know whar he is if he'd tended stock instead of running about the prairie packing off women and children he might have saved something he lost every hoof and hide i'll bet a cookie say you to a passing boatman when are you going to give us some grub i'm hungry enough to skin and eat a hoss reckon i'll turn butcher when things is dried up and save hides horns and taller i could not but admire this indomitable energy which under softer climatic influences might have borne such goodly fruit have you any idea what you'll do wise i ask that much to do now says the practical young man i'll have to lay over a spell i reckon till things come straight the land ain't worth much now and won't be i dassay for some time wonder why the old man'll drive stakes next i meant as to your father and george wise oh the old man and i'll go to miles where tom packed the old woman and babies last week george'll turn up somewhere atween this and atascars if he ain't thar now i ask how the atascars have suffered well i reckon he ain't lost much in stock i shouldn't wonder if george helped him drive him up the foothills and his cosses built too high oh there ain't any water thar you bet ah says wise with reflective admiration those greasers ain't the darned fools people thinks em i'll bet thar ain't one swamped out in all er californy but the appearance of grub cut this rhapsody short i shall keep on a little farther i say and try to find george wise stared a moment at this eccentricity until a new light dawned upon him i don't think you'll save much what's the percentage working on shares eh i answer that i am only curious which i feel lessens his opinion of me and with a sadder feeling than his assurance of george's safety might warrant i walked away from others whom we picked up from time to time we heard of george's self-sacrificing devotion with the praises of the many he had helped and rescued but i did not feel disposed to return until i had seen him and soon prepared myself to take a boat to the lower valda of the foothills 
and visit Atascar. I soon perfected my arrangements, bade farewell to Wise, and took a last look at the old man, who was sitting by the furnace fires, quite passive and composed. Then our boat head swung round, pulled by sturdy and willing hands. It was again raining, and a disagreeable wind had risen. Our course lay nearly west, and we soon knew by the strong current that we were in the creek of the Espiritu Santo. From time to time the wrecks of barns were seen, and we passed many half-submerged willows hung with farming implements. We emerge at last into a broad, silent sea. It is the Llano de Espiritu Santo. As the wind whistles by me, piling the shallower fresh water into mimic waves, I go back, in fancy, to the long ride of October over that boundless plain, and recall the sharp outlines of the distant hills which are now lost in the lowering clouds. The men are rowing silently, and I find my mind, released from its tension, growing benumbed and depressed as then. The water, too, is getting more shallow as we leave the banks of the creek, and with my hand dipped listlessly over the thwarts, I detect the tops of Chimisal, which shows the tide to have somewhat fallen. There is a black mound, bearing to the north of the line of alder, making an adverse current, which, as we sweep to the right to avoid, I recognize. We pull close alongside, and I call to the men to stop. There was a stake driven near its summit with the initials L-E-S-I. Tied halfway down was a curiously worked riata. It was George's. It had been cut with some sharp instrument, and the loose gravelly soil of the mound was deeply dented with horses' hoofs. The stake was covered with horse-hairs. It was a record, but no clue. The wind had grown more violent, as we still fought our way forward, resting and rowing by turns, and oftener poling the shallower surface, but the old valda, or bench, is still distant. My recollection of the old survey enables me to guess the relative position of the meanderings of the creek, and an occasional simple professional experiment to determine the distance gives my crew the fullest faith in my ability. Night overtakes us in our impeded progress. Our condition looks more dangerous than it really is, but I urge the men, many of whom are still new in this mode of navigation, to greater exertion by assurance of perfect safety and speedy relief ahead. We go on in this way until about eight o'clock and ground by the willows. We have a muddy walk for a few hundred yards before we strike a dry trail, and simultaneously the white walls of Altascars appear like a snowbank before us. Lights are moving in the courtyard but otherwise the old tomb-like repose characterizes the building. One of the peons recognized me as I entered the court, and Altascar met me on the corridor. I was too weak to do more than beg his hospitality for the men who had dragged wearily with me. 
he looked at my hand, which still unconsciously held the broken riata. I began wearily to tell him about George and my fears, but with a gentler courtesy than was even his wont, he gravely laid his hand on my shoulder. Poco a poco, signor, not now. You are tired. You have hunger. You have cold. Necessary it is you should have peace. He took us into a small room and poured out some French cognac, which he gave to the men that had accompanied me. They drank and threw themselves before the fire in the larger room. The repose of the building was intensified that night, and I even fancied that the footsteps on the corridor were lighter and softer. The old Spaniard's habitual gravity was deeper. We might have been shut out from the world as well as the whistling storm, behind those ancient walls with their time-worn inheritor. Before I could repeat my inquiry, he retired. In a few minutes, two smoking dishes of chupa with coffee were placed before us, and my men ate ravenously. I drank the coffee, but my excitement and weariness kept down the instincts of hunger. I was sitting sadly by the fire when he re-entered. "'You have eat?' I said, yes, to please him. Bueno, eat when you can. Food and appetite are not always. He said this with that Sancho-like simplicity with which most of his countrymen utter a proverb, as though it were an experience rather than a legend, and, taking the riata from the floor, held it almost tenderly before him. It was made by me, senor. I kept it as a clue to him, Don Altascar, I said. If I could find him, he is here. Here? And... But I couldn't say, well. I understood the gravity of the old man's face, the hushed footfalls, the tomb-like repose of the building in an electric flash of consciousness. I held the clue to the broken riata at last. Altascar took my hand, and we crossed the corridor to a somber apartment. A few tall candles were burning in sconces before the window. In an alcove there was a deep bed with its counterpane, pillows, and sheets heavily edged with lace, in all that splendid luxury which the humblest of these strange people lavish upon this single item of their household. I stepped beside it and saw George lying, as I had seen him once before, peacefully at rest but a greater sacrifice than that he had known was here, and his generous heart was stilled forever. He was honest and brave, said the old man, and turned away. There was another figure in the room, a heavy shawl drawn over her graceful outline, and her long black hair hiding the hands that buried her downcast face. I did not seem to notice her, and, retiring presently, left the loving and loved together. When we were again beside the crackling fire, in the shifting shadows of the great chamber, Altascar told me how he had that morning met the horse of George Tryon swimming on the prairie, how that, further on, he found him lying, quite cold and dead, 
with no marks or bruises on his person that he had probably become exhausted in fording the creek and that he had as probably reached the mound only to die for want of that help he had so freely given to others that as a last act he had freed his horse these incidents were corroborated by many who collected in the great chamber that evening women and children most of them succored through the devoted energies of him who lay cold and lifeless above he was buried in the indian mound the single spot of strange perennial greenness which the poor aborigines had raised above the dusty plain a little slab of sandstone with the initials g t is his monument and one of the bearings of the initial corner of the new survey of the Espiritu Santo Rancho. End of chapter 12, part 2